welcome to the Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast, Episode 4, The Recreation of Brian Kent, by Harold Bell Wright. The Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast is your monthly review of a best-selling novel from 100 years ago. I'm Mike, and with my co-host John, we'll be exploring these literary gems. As a reminder, this book and all of the books we discuss on this podcast are available for free download from the Gutenberg Project. A link is in the podcast description. As with previous episodes, we'll start by discussing the author and then give a quick plot summary, followed by a general discussion of the book. Lastly, we'll give the book a subjective numeric score you can take to the bank. But before we begin all that, a few quick words. We continue to tweak this podcast's format and appreciate any feedback from our listeners, good and bad. Mike and I hope to make this podcast as fun and interesting to listen to as it is to make. Also, starting in 2021, we're looking for a few guest reviewers to join us. If you're interested in reading or rereading a nearly forgotten bestseller and reviewing with us, please reach out. Please note the profit and royalty opportunities from this podcast are tremendous. All right, let's get back to today's novel. Mike, what can you tell us about the author, Harold Bell Wright? Okay, so John, first I need to tell you a little bit about me. I'm getting a case of PTSD from reviewing and describing the authors that have uh, been reviewed thus far. He was born on May 4th, 1872 in Rome, New York. His father was a drunk and did not care for him very much, but he did love his mother. She died when he was 10 and his father abandoned him soon after, leaving him totally homeless. He was left completely on his own. So he spends a few years roughing it on the streets, finding couches, not even proverbial, literal couches to sleep on. And he makes his way to Hiram College. So this is someone who was really trying to make something of himself. But then he had to leave due to an injury that left him almost blind. He eventually becomes a fairly successful pastor. He traveled to Pittsburgh. He was a pastor there. He had several congregations in Missouri. And then he moved to California. He wrote his first book in 1902, which he read to his congregation chapter by chapter, and they loved it, according to him. He published it in 1903 at their behest, and sales were good enough that he started writing possibly his most famous book, Shepherd of the Hills, in 1907. Not his best-selling book, but probably his most famous. He died in California on May 24, 1944. Okay, that's the quick and dirty. Here's the slightly less quick and a fair bit dirtier. First, he was hands down one of, if not the most successful author of his generation, even including our most recent authors. And I found this interesting. He sold more than 10 million books, and he was the first American author to make over $1 million writing fiction. That would have been more than $13 million today. Like we discussed prior to this, I've done something wrong with my life. He really enjoyed tooting his own horn. He, was one, he once wrote an entire article in the New York Times titled, Why? is Harold Wright Bell, answered by himself, in which he humbly discounts his own writing skills, but still talks up his writing abilities and their appeal. You got to give him credit for getting that in print. So throughout his life, he's very- Small amount of ego there that you're willing to publish an article about why you are pretty amazing. I mean, the fact that your name is actually the subject of the why, (laughs) wow. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Although, to be fair, it apparently worked, though, because he made a boat ton of money. (laughs) 
doing, doing this doing this self publication. He should have added why dollar sign Harold Wright dollar sign Bell question mark dollar sign just to really <laughs> keep in mind because I think that dollar sign is emblematic of the actual answer to that weird question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and actually I think you just got to it right. So throughout his life, he's super clear. His congregation wanted him to publish. He was writing these things just for himself, but they loved it so much as he read it to them in mass that they wanted him to publish. Then his audience wanted him to write more about his humble experience and he reluctantly acquiesced. He left preaching, of course, because they wanted it so much so that he could go into this far more lucrative writing career. Draw your own conclusions. Yeah. Okay. Little added spice, which I've only started looking into because of our last author and his remarkable... Uh, experiences in this regard. <laughs> this guy was married and he had three children. He married his wife, Frances Long, in 1899, and they got a divorce in 1920. Interesting, right? We've talked about how surprising that is, that this is such a facet of all these books. Well, then he marries his second wife, Winifred Mary Potter Duncan, on August 5th, 1920, literally days after his divorce. According to the newspaper notice about the wedding, he charged his now ex-wife, with mental cruelty and alleged at the time that his wife was not in sympathy with his literary efforts and their alleged misunderstandings were said to have hampered him in pursuing his career. Remember, the career he was dragged into by his congregation. The he reluctantly took up. I re- he, he was, <laughs> she was holding him back from the reluctant career as a successful writer. Oh, okay. That was it. He, he could never have really spread his wings, right? <laughs> So, so this suit gets dropped probably because a judge uh, laughed at him in the face and uh, they got reconciled. Then they weren't reconciled. Then he gets a divorce and days later he gets married. Okay. There's your, there's your dirty. Here's a little bit of the, the fun and interesting facts and then I'll stop talking about it just to give you a sense of the impact of what this author really did accomplish in his life. According to Ronald Reagan's biographer, the late president wrote to one of Bell's living relatives in that his book, The Printer of Udells, inspired him to get involved in politics. So this guy was responsible for Ronald Reagan, according to Ronald Reagan, and probably this guy's publisher. Uh, There were 15 (laughs) movies produced and claimed to be made from his stories. One of them featured John Wayne as the titular shepherd of The Shepherd of the Hills, and Gary Cooper in his first role in The Winning of Barbara Worth. He has several museums in his honor and parts of the California town where he lived out his final years, actually had streets named after some of his characters or locales. Uh, One of his novels, in fact, was based on and very negatively reflects back to his congregation in California, one of his earlier congregations. The residents were so angry about his book that one of the succeeding pastors actually wrote a book in response in which the main character parallels the original character, but ends up making different decisions that not coincidentally were much more positive for the town. So there's a bunch of like passive aggressive novel writing about a fake congregation that's a real congregation in California, and everyone's reading these, knowing the sub, the, you know, the what it really means. But wow, you know what? We don't take passive aggression nearly far enough <laughs> compared to what they did a century ago because we don't have the dedication. <laughs> we just do like mean tweets. They write novels and then publish them and wait year. You know what? In two years when this is published and you get a copy, you're going to rue the day. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and and I'd better hope that it actually pays me some dividends so I can passively aggressively write about somebody else. You just wait <laughs> a decade hence. <laughs> okay, then money and passive aggressive. Good. <laughs> so his last thing, really, uh, he really didn't like in the latter part of his life that what he viewed as modern fiction, uh, generally the 20s and 30s forward, had become so gritty, he called it sordid. He said, my writing was virtuous. This writing is bad. I'm not the world's greatest writer, he says hilariously, but people really like it. And I try to stick to the good Christian values. Okay. So his concern was that books had become too entertaining and interesting. (laughs) And so they had to be replaced with his very virtuous writing, which he was reluctantly dragged into despite the efforts of his first wife. Okay. (laughs) Kicking and screaming despite her tripping him up at every turn. And remember that as we review this book. Thank you for bringing that up. That actually helps explain a character in our book that we'll discuss uh, in a moment here. Now, uh, so I pulled up a few statistics. I took some snapshots that we can look at here, just kind of looking at his books in general uh, on Goodreads. The author himself has uh, 4.16 stars out of five out of nearly 4,800 ratings. Whatever you and I say here, the general population enjoys his writing, or at least people who seek out this genre enjoy his writing. And so, because there is some certain self-selection in people who now read a hundred-year-old book by a, by a pastor. The man abides, John. <laughs> Looking at this book itself, also a four point one six rating, and I actually pulled up a uh, kind of a, a histogram graph of what people gave it. Half of people gave it five stars. Okay, so half people gave no one gave it one star. Three quarters of people gave it four or five stars. So. No matter what we say, good listener, you can almost ignore us and just take the fact that the herd thinks that this is a great book. Remember that phrase, the herd thinks this is a great book, (laughs) (laughs) but you can love it if you want. (laughs) All right, Mike. Now that we've talked about the author, it is time for us to have our newest segment Returning from last week, due to the complete silence from our audience, so therefore I can only assume they were happy with it, the 10-sentence summary. Our story begins with Brian Kent, a bank teller full of guilt for stealing from his employer, actively drinking himself to death, and stealing a boat to die upon a river. Brian's boat washes ashore and is discovered by Judy, a local disabled mountain girl and he is brought into the house of a saintly Auntie Sue, a local educator and mentor to wayward souls. Auntie Sue deflects local authorities' attention away from the thief and nurses Brian back to health, both physically and in a more spiritual sense. Brian promises to repay Auntie Sue's kindness by working for her, all while continuing to soak up the older woman's wisdom and spiritual insights culminating in Brian writing a novel. When Brian's novel needs to be typed, edited, and submitted to a publisher, Auntie Sue calls in a favor from Betty Jo, a relative of an old pupil of hers who has just finished business school. Betty Jo's arrival is met with joy by Brian, who falls madly in love with her, and by jealousy by Judy, who swears if she can't have Brian, then no one will. When Betty Jo returns from selling the novel in the city, 
Judy storms off and spreads word of who Brian is to her father, and even outs Brian's whereabouts to a previously undisclosed estranged wife. Simultaneously, and in an unlikely twist of fate, the president of the bank, Brian Robb, turns out to be the uncle and only living relative of Betty Jo, and a formal pupil of Auntie Sue, and therefore forgives the entire mess at the request of the old teacher. Brian's wife tracks him down a little house and, after a brief confrontation, drunkenly kills herself in the river. Now freed from his financial debts to the bank and previous marriage, Brian marries Betty Jo and lives happily ever after. The end. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, John. Do you you want to lead into this first? (laughs) I have some thoughts. So we can go back and forth here on some thoughts. Let me start on a positive note. I actually think, despite all of the author's bluster, there were times I thought he was a very good writer. I thought there were actually very well-written scenes and some very identifiable themes, which I think is what a lot of the people who rate the book highly cling to, is that there are things in this book that talk about the general struggles in life, the fact that you know life generally throws a lot of crap at you sometimes that you have to deal with unexpected uh, turbulence, let's say, and that if you just kind of keep on going, usually you can get through it better than you thought you could. And and, and I grabbed a quick passage that I thought, I, I remember highlighting this because I thought it was, it, was, it was noteworthy. It was earlier in the book, probably about 10% in or so, quote, and as he sat there, the man was conscious that he had reached one of those turning points that are found in every life where results, momentous and far-reaching, are dependent on comparatively unimportant and temporary issues. Okay. And so I read that. I'm like, you know, that's actually a really interesting turn of phrase and even thought that I could see someone, especially younger, who's like, how am I supposed to know what to do with my life? What college do I go to? Should I marry this girl? Should I not marry this girl? Should I take this job in another city? You have zero information about where things are going to go but your life is definitely going to be changed by it. Brian thinks about these things throughout. Now, what he was thinking about in this specific section was whether or not he was going to stay with Auntie Sue or not, which you knew he was going to, and it was the obvious choice. So while this is a great paragraph, it didn't actually properly reflect what was going on in the book at the time. But going back to what I what I enjoyed about the author, I think that he was a very good writer at times. I think that you could tell when he was really on his game and being very descriptive, I thought there were some very good passages. I thought that the characters in general were pretty well written. He didn't have a huge cast of characters, and I think that allows you to explore each character a little more. You know, you've got Auntie Sue is actually, I think, the least well-written character because she's so saintly that he has to make her so perfect that you don't really understand much of her motivation at all. And that was kind of sad. But Judy, the, the disabled mountain girl who was beaten by her father when she was really young and therefore left crippled. You don't understand the extent of her, how injured she was, but she's clearly noticeably crippled. She's a more in-depth character. And and we really discussed, you know, the things that she's she's afraid of, that she wants for her life, when she goes back and forth between being very independent and clearly dependent. Um, really good character. Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree with that. I think what he does, he's able to describe a character with enough depth to make it an interesting character. And he does make explicit some of the things that make a character interesting. So I was, I was very happy about that. I, and I think your point about Judy 
specifically is very interesting. As a character, it's not something that you would necessarily expect to run into the way he describes her. And I like that. You have a little bit of sympathy. I think that he didn't dwell enough on some of the characters, but that's a modern conceit of things with respect to the number of pages you can have, the number, the amount of time you can spend. I think for what he had, he did write the characters very well. And actually there is, there is one line that I really liked that he wrote and it, and it stood out to me because it's the sort of line that I think our previous author would have liked to have written in seven pages, but this author does a great job of summing up in one sentence and it goes the crisp, some sweet air of the autumn mornings. When we went forth with his axe to the day's clean labor was a draft of potent magic that set every nerve of him tingling with delight. Now it's a little, <laughs> a little risque, but at the same time, that crispness comes across. It's a very good turn of phrase. I think as a written piece, this is pretty solid. It's a pretty well-written book with some great phrasing and some good character development. So I, I, I would agree with you there. All right. So, so, Mike, let's jump right into what I think is my biggest beef with this book. And it's, it's what kind of got me thinking at the end is how I liked the book until the last 15%. And I think that the author just didn't carry it home because he identified with the protagonist, right? What he needed the protagonist to do to make it a successful book, he couldn't do because he's the protagonist and didn't want to do that. And that is the protagonist lived. And that sounds crazy, maybe, you know, people who haven't read the book yet, but what could have been a very strong, redemptive story just fell flat. So so let me give an example, because I, I pulled a section out of this, out of the book to, to read here, because I think it's worth reading. Here we are, the estranged wife is in the river, flowing towards the rapids, and we expect that she's not going to make it. She can't get back out. She's thrown her, she's lost her oar, she's, she's too drunk and destroyed, she can't do anything. So, quote, the splendid strength of arms and shoulders, which Brian Kent had acquired by his months of work with his axe on the timbered mountainside, sustained him now in his need. With tremendous energy, he breasted the might of the furious river. To the watchers, it seemed at times that it was beyond the power of human muscle to endure the terrific strain. Then he gained the boat, and they saw him striving with desperate energy to drag it towards the opposite shore, and so into the currents that would carry it past the menacing point of the cliff perhaps the safety of the quiet water below. All that human strength could do in that terrible situation, Brian Kent did. But the task was beyond the power of mortal man. So I read that. I'm like, wow. Okay, this is how it goes, right? The river gives and the river takes. And so it's going to end that he does the best he can. But nonetheless, what was his fate a year earlier is his fate now, but he's a different man going to the same fate. And I was really satisfied with that. But then one page later, somewhere in that terrible conflict with the wild waters of Elbow Rock, while the man whose life she had so nearly ruined by her wantonness was fighting to save her, the soul of Martha Kent went from the bruised and battered body, which Brian Kent drew at last from the vicious grip of the current. But the man lived. The wrong person died. I, okay. I totally agree. You know, for me, and this is probably maybe the Catholic in me coming out versus what I think is perhaps the, the beginning of the prosperity gospel kind of thinking is that if the story had been man goes to commit suicide in despair and is spared from dying on that river 
for one year to become the man he should have been, to make the wrongs right, and then in his final act dies saving someone who at that time had just realized that she was wrong. That has a powerful story. That's that's a very redemptive story of fate demands a soul and it gets the soul, but through whatever power there is, delays it a year so that the same death has way more meaning. And instead, we get a, hey, you know what? It wasn't his time and everything is always great and grand. And uh, and since I'm the author, who then I'm not going to die. And now that you told me the story of his history, the wife who so cruelly held him back from being a rich and famous author luckily goes to her death while he does his best to help her. But by golly gee, it's just beyond the power of mortal man to help some people. And so I was so upset that he didn't die. And I know that sounds crazy because as I'm reading, I'm like, wow, he's about to die here. That's going to be crazy. I want to, I'm, I'm curious how they're going to wrap it up, how they're going to wrap up, you know, Betty Joe and his love for her. They're going to wrap up, you know, his book gets published and he's loved posthumously. That would be a very powerful story. And I thought he just didn't bring it home because he himself is this author and therefore he can't be the one who dies in the river. I, I totally agree with you there. So I was thinking about this because when I read it, first off, I felt the entire book, despite some of its pretty solid characterization, was essentially one giant meat cute. You have all these characters who happen across each other. They instantly click. They get each other. It happens in the span of a couple pages. You disregard some of the other characters that were interesting. You know, Judy, I feel, gets extremely short shrift. And I'll put that in the last 15%, just like you did. And basically, it it was far too coincidental. But at the end, when you tie it together, if he had the sacrifice, and in this case, it had to be his life, it was the river. In some ways, it was the completion of the journey on the river. Just like you said, it had to be that. So I thought to myself when I was reading this, maybe I'm too critical. Maybe this is something that before the 1930s, people weren't getting the sense of drama and the pain and everything. And then I thought, no, (laughs) hold on a minute. How many times have we read myths, stories, all sorts of literature and fiction from hundreds of years previous to this that understood drama, it understood sacrifice, it understood that in order to tell what is essentially the human story, you have to have the pathos of sacrifice and some suffering. That's where humanity shines at its best. It redeems us. Now, here we are talking Catholicism again, right? But in some sense, it's really Christianity that we're talking. And in some sense, it's a much broader scale than that because the river could easily have been a Zen thing or a Buddhist thing. When he decided for... Uh, when he made the decision for the man to live and the woman to die, he essentially said, you know what? Despite the man's sins. Now we can't forget, right? That this author was a pastor. This guy knew what he was writing about. That's why he inspired Ronald Reagan. Good, bad, good, and evil, how it redeems, how it doesn't. So this is a guy who knew exactly what you and I are talking about. And when he said that that banker was going to pay off the debts and it was okay, That wasn't forgiveness. That wasn't absolution. That wasn't payment of debt. That was just saying, it's okay that you sinned. When he fails to save his wife, which is his wife, mind you, not some lady that he disconnected with or, you know, some girl that he knew sometime, his wife to whom he owed that bond, regardless of circumstance, when he failed to save her, it allowed him to move on free of guilt, 
free of sin, free of problems, to shockingly get married to the woman with whom he had fallen in love, as opposed to the woman he had been married to when he stole and ran away from. And even in the book, this, this wife character who only gets, what, five pages, she says, well, he really only stole because of me. Well, I was really the cause of it. What happened when she showed up at his house? She was drunk. Why did she fall into the river? Because she was drunk. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and even in the paragraph I read, while the man whose life she had so nearly ruined, I was really disappointed by the way this went. You know, and, and you know, you're using some very old myths. I'm going to use a little more modern. I was thinking of Groundhog Day in that, and I know that sounds just as deep as the pathos of 3,000 years of, of myth and legend, but <laughs> it was that if we're going to continue on, the book goes over and over again about life is a river, right? And sometimes it's smooth and broad and slow, and then it, and then it speeds up and it narrows and it goes over rocks and sometimes there's falls. And so, and, and I, I get that. If we're going to continue that analogy, then life is a river. He pauses on the river to change who he is, but you still have to go down the river. And so I was okay with much like in Groundhog Day where, no, we're going to stay here on this day and we're going to do it again and again and again until you're the man that you need to be to go to the next day. Or in this case, you're the man you need to be to meet your fate on the sharp rocks at the bottom of this fall because the suicidal drunk you were a year earlier is not the man who should die on those rocks. But the man who should die on those rocks is a, a good man, an honest man who's paid his debts, done his penance and dies a sinless man. But that's not what happens. Instead, everything is forgiven. Quite frankly, the best thing that happened to him was that he robbed this bank <laughs> and then got drunk and stole a boat and floated down a river. Thank God he did all of these awful things so he could live happily ever after. And so I'm just so upset that it wasn't wrapped up in any sort of moral story, especially coming from uh, written by a pastor who you think would have a deep understanding, as you say, of of how redemption works. And while I'm not going to get into this whole, you know, how much you have to pay for your sins and how much is forgiven. And and certainly I, I'm all about forgiveness, but I also believe that there's there's a penance owed in order to achieve your certain um, savior. I was just, I, I really wanted, this sounds awful. I wanted him to die in that river and die a good man instead of going on to live to eventually be a villain again, I guess. But you know what, John, let, let, let's call it what it is from a, from a literary standpoint. Neither one of us obviously is, is a professor of literature. There, there's certainly things that maybe, you know, I certainly don't understand about this, but I think we have to be reasonable with ourselves, with a reader, with an author. It, it's, I think, less that we might have wanted him to die than that he had to die to make the rest of it worth it. And I'm not just talking about the pages of the book. I'm talking about the theme of the book. Yeah. The story doesn't work if he lives happily ever after. It only works if at the end he doesn't and and other people do. In fact, if he had saved his estranged wife as she was, as you noted, kind of going through this, she should have paid more attention to her husband. Right. And in which case he should have actually thought of, I should have paid more attention to my wife. And they all could have had realizations of all the wrong things they did. He shouldn't have stole. She shouldn't have pushed him into a situation that he couldn't afford. They shouldn't have had unreasonable expectations. And if at the end, as she was ready to become the person she wanted to be, his sacrifice allowed her to do that, then that's a very much of a big paying it forward. And then she pauses on the river for a while and becomes the person she needs to be. And that is a very wonderful story, but that's not what you got in this book. 
you know, Jenna, this modern term that I think applies here is agency. The characters themselves being able to operate independently or at least with the assumption that they could operate independently of the primary driver of the plot is giving your characters agency. And when you look at the characters in this book, aside from the man himself, and I would even venture to say not him, they don't have agency. Uh, They're not acting independent of what you might call the river of the plot. There's no, as much as I liked the elements of the characters that he built, and I did, I genuinely liked the elements of the characters he built. It's like he started off in one direction and then lost it. And by the way, um, just to throw out this one last piece, because I've noticed it in a few books, uh, many of the characters that bring drama, and it must have been in the 1920s, gee, I wonder why, are just drunks, just flat out drunks. They're seeping into dissipation. So what do we have with this guy? Oh, he loves whiskey and he's a big Irish guy. (laughs) Yeah. Now I'm just saying it didn't (laughs) slip my notice. But one last thing. I have to tell you, it gave me a new appreciation in some ways for Mary Marie, because I thought to myself, (laughs) weirdly, the character at the end of Mary Marie, who writes and goes through all that at the end of the book, this is not somebody who was the happiest person in the world. You know, it easily could have been. She became more real because of what she went through. And and when you see her in her early twenties, like she's a more real person who has real concerns and real frustrations with life. She became more real. Whereas as this goes through, it becomes less real and more fantasy. And, And that was another point I wrote down here is that I was okay with Brian deciding to become an author. And saying, you know, I always wanted to write, but you didn't have the time. Okay, that makes sense. And and lots of authors write about being authors. So that's all that's all fine because it's a career they know. I was fine with him finding some peace working in the woods. It got ridiculous when the president of the bank says, I read this book, and it is not only the greatest book of the year, but this is the greatest mind of our century. It will change civilizations as we know. And I said, wow, that was a pretty big jump to dude writes a book in the woods. I I feel like the author had a really good start, didn't know how to finish it, and so wrote, well, if this is me, how do I think this will go? And given that he wrote an article about why he's the greatest author, I could see why he'd write himself as being the greatest author. I do hope at the end of our podcast, whenever that is, God forbid we get near it soon, both of us write an article, probably in the New York Times, but more likely in the Tom's River Observer, why Jonathan Carpenter? Why Michael Smolin? <laughs> An answer by both podcast hosts. <laughs> we will tell you why you should have been listening. And if you weren't, you were wrong. <laughs> and then we're going to write a passive aggressive novel about how stupid you were to not listen to this podcast. If you were all in a river and our mighty seniors were striving to save your life, <laughs> they would be too weak and we would not miss you. But you died, but we lived it. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've got to say, it's one of the, maybe it started with that last author, but in some ways I feel as though I'm spoiling it a little bit when I'm talking about these authors, I suppose, because it's surprising to me in some ways, and maybe this is from our being raised in the eighties and the nineties and everything, that an author is so semi-autobiographical in books that are essentially fiction because it's, it's almost disappointing to see how this came in. When I read the book, I hadn't, I purposely did not want to know too much about the author. And in some ways, 
when I was done with the book, I had a slightly more positive impression. There were still things I didn't like about it, all the things we've identified, but I said, you know what? It's a plot. Things go kind of whatever. And then the more I read about the author, it just was so shockingly transparent to me. And it truly was transparent. Worst yet, the author knows it. I think when you read this book, you can feel him writing this, not the book, but the author writing the book. You can understand the impetus behind his words because even without knowing who he was, the fact that he made the choice for the man to to find his wife and then two pages later, uh, she's dead and he goes to somebody else is such a cheat. You know it, there had to be something else beyond it. Maybe he was running out of time. Maybe he had a problem writing, but no, no, there's a little bit more to it. In some ways, the saga of this man's psyche <laughs> is just as interesting, if not more so than any of the characters in the book, I think. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because as you're saying that, the character of the estranged wife adds literally nothing to the book, but Absolutely. takes away from the book. Had that never happened, had he only, because he always seemed a little aloof with Betty Joe, but I took that to be that he was still mid process of understanding himself and did not want to get into a relationship till he knew who he was. And I was perfectly fine with that. That made a ton of sense to me of, Hey, he's like, listen, I'm still on this temporary living in this old lady's house, doing manual labor to pay for my room and board. I'm not in a situation where I should be getting into a serious relationship with, with somebody who came in to help me with my book. So I'm going to stay a little standoff until we know where things stand. And until I pay off my debt and feel that I'm the man who deserves to go out like that, I was fine with that. The addition of the estranged wife who needs to die on sharp rocks, the bottom of a waterfall didn't add to it. I don't read the biography until after we're halfway through this podcast. And you explained to me what the biography, it makes so much more sense why he added it in and it ruins the book. I, I totally agree. Does. I totally I agree. I, you know what? what now I, need to, I, I need to go and change my rating. I was actually going <laughs> to give this book like a recommendation. Oh no! And now I don't know. And now I don't know what to do because knowing about the author can make or break a book. And the more you know about this author and then read it in there, I can see why they're like. Of course, he was, this is a passive aggressive book against his wife. Like there was a passive aggressive book against his old congregation. That's so that's exactly right. This is the this is the theme. If this had been the only book, maybe. But given the fact that this is literally a theme that comes across in the man's writings in his article in the New York Times. Now, I'm going to reverse course for a minute because to get back to something you were saying originally, the writing itself is good. It's a little bit better than serviceable. And he has some very neat, neat turns of phrase. He does write characters that I would want to know more about. I'd love to have read a book about the life of Sue. I would love to have read a book about Judy's journey. Less about Betty Joe, but I've got to tell you, it's because my mother's name is Betty Joe. No joke. <laughs> and when I saw that in the book, maybe it tainted my view slightly. <laughs> But the writing itself, the quality of the writing, the book as a book is not bad. The story of the book, the plot of the book, the flaws in it, I think also come about, John, when you think about this, we know all about the life of Stephen King. We know all about the life of Robert Jordan, George Martin, all these other people that are very popular, hyper popular fiction authors now. We know those people, but because of the fantastical nature of some of what they write, because of the world we live in. I think there is by nature a distance between words and author. When you look at that now, that's with fiction and particularly the fiction we've read. 
But when you look at this, which is the rough equivalent, that distance isn't there. And it's actually so close, it's basically merged. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see where you end up with your rating, I've got to say. I will say, as a writing prompt, the idea for the story is really good. The concept of a, a man ridden with guilt gets in a boat to kill himself, but fails at killing himself and winds up meeting new people and trying to start a new life completely away from where he was, was a great start. Again, I think the first 70% of the book was very good. It's then he like decided to inject things. Oh, I need to go find a wife. Oh, it turns out across the river, there's a club that we didn't talk about for the first 70% of the book, but there's this giant club with a bunch of rich people who party all night. But we never mentioned that until suddenly we need a way to get the wife into this plot. Really disappointed me. Oh, well, I guess another real awesome book that we read from 1920. I, and I started wondering whether or not as we go through these, Mike, if you know, we're looking at the best selling of that year and how much of that is driven by the the fame of the author versus the quality of the book. And, and I always knew that would be an issue. And, and it's something I think as we move forward into uh, 2021, we may need to mix it up with maybe some of the highest rated books later on versus the best selling novels, just to make sure we find a couple decent novels to recommend to people as we get into double digit podcast numbers. You know, and, and I, <laughs> I think you have a really good point there. The one thing that that also stands out to me, so first off, we look at 1920, the historical context of 1920, it's really immediately before the huge onslaught of the Depression. So in some ways, you still have this, I'm not going to call it innocence, but you still have a pre-absolute disaster of the United States coming in. And I think that's worth it for us to look at because in the next two years of books, I think we're going to start seeing that reflected. I do like the freshness of this freedom. The one theme through all the books, I think, is this rediscovering yourself and the freedom of our world to allow that, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And what you've seen a lot too is, as you bring that up, is we've read several of the books that talk about kind of the, the high society and the, the the trappings therein. So you can see that to be sprinkled into the writing more and more of a, oh, as in Mary Marie, the people in Boston who are spending all their money on on just parties and dress, and that doesn't kind of match up with the more simple, make sense rural living. In this case, you also have a very big disconnect between the very rural mountain folk who are you know making ends meet, but generally seem to be happier than the the partying city folk who just go from party to party, day to day, and they literally told you know his estranged wife. Don't think about anything that makes you upset. You know what? Have a drink. That, that, that was literally a whole section is stop thinking about things that make you upset and have another drink. That solves all of your problems. And we've seen that in a couple of books now from 1920. And I expect that we'll probably see a few more of those kinds of themes as we enter into 1921. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think it's going to be interesting to see where that leads us. The last thing I would say about this, just because you know we're, we're sort of coming full circle in some ways with 1920. And our first book was The Great Impersonation. And when I look at that, I'm seeing a character that almost parallels to a surprising degree the character in this novel. It was a guy who was really at the end of his rope. He was kind of a mess, didn't like his life, threw himself to the wind, went through a bit of a, a torture to get to a place, and then rediscovers himself. And you know what I see? I see two things there. One... I think that novel made some different narrative choices than this one, which I liked. I do notice that the first novel also did not create such a sacrifice, much like this one. 
but the way the author chose to write it was so different from the recreation here that I think it allowed for a little bit of leeway. And I think it's all to the credit of how plots are done because the writing was so very different, but all the writing has been really interesting to read, relatively well-written. The plotting is important though, and also the setting. So when I look at the setting and I'm looking at the past three books we've read and they're very American setting, it's almost like there's this sort of blanket of an American setting to these books that says, hey, look, things are happening, but hey, it's okay. We're going. There's so much, I'm going to call it wacky positivity. Now, in some ways it's refreshing. And I have to wonder if it has something to do with who we are as a country, why people think we're so positive all the time, why we're always smiling. We always think tomorrow is going to be better than today. I kind of feel like maybe this is one of those places where you started to see it, or maybe we're just starting to see it in the books, borne out. There was always a happy tomorrow. And it's in some ways nice to see. It's almost like watching a Hallmark movie. You know, you can't feel bad because there's really nothing to feel bad about. No matter how bad it gets, it's okay. You bring up some, a great point about the great impersonation, which again, is also a redemption story. But the difference is the protagonist in that book he had to face up to his old sins in very interesting ways and make them all right. And he went through and, and while Brian Kent in this book goes ahead and, you know, I guess earns enough money to pay off his debt. He doesn't have to face up to all the different sins of his past, all the failings. He also had significant marriage problem in, in, in the great impersonation, yep. driving his wife crazy. So what did he do? Did he leave her and go with the countess? Did he no, no. He wound up actually reigniting his romance with that wife, spending time to slowly help her where she needed to be and fixed his relationship. And so he went through with all of his relationships and fixed them all. You nailed it. And, and so while he didn't necessarily have some comeuppance, he put in the time and did the penance that he needed to do to become the new man, to recreate that character. Whereas there wasn't the work for Brian Kent to fix everything other than working with the axe and getting his own mental state in a better place. He didn't fix the outside of relationships. And maybe that's why it's not satisfying at the end that he didn't do the work to fix the outside of relationships. Whereas in the great impersonation, that protagonist did. Okay. I've, I think you're absolutely right. And it really just struck me like a lightning bolt. And then, you know, we can wrap this up. Obviously, I know it, <laughs> we could talk about this all night, but the great impersonation. Go back and listen to podcast number one. The, pro the, the production quality is atrocious, but it was the best book we read this year. It really was. If nothing else, at least read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so the title of the first book is The Great Impersonation. The title of this book is The Recreation of Brian Kent. The Great Impersonation is this guy pretending to be somebody else. And the recreation of Brian Kent, theoretically, the whole notion is that he's recreating himself, right? I actually think you could flip those titles. What in God's name did Brian Kent recreate here? He barely went by the fake name that Aunt Sue made up for him. The great impersonation, yeah, there absolutely was an impersonation, but you just pointed out this guy actually recreated himself. He used an impersonation to better the person he originally was. And you're right. His sacrifice was going back in it and accepting his flaws and then correcting them in the service of others. As opposed to Brian Kent, who in no way recreated himself. At best, he's impersonating who he wants to be. And frankly, book to the side, never will be. Yeah. So I think that's a great wrap up for 
2020 <laughs> podcast is that the first book we we reviewed is the better version of Recreation. So if if you have to read anything this year from anything you've listed from us, go back and read The Great Impersonation and leave this one aside. So let's actually go into this final segment. So we have the GDD rating scheme. We're just going to give a number here. I'm going to have to make a quick adjustment of mine on the fly here. But Mike, one to 10, and would you recommend the book? I would recommend the book at a five. The reasons being, it's a relatively quick read. It's light on the brain, and the writing is good. The latter five would be weak plot, weak ending, and a thematic issue that I just can't get over. I was coming in, I was going to give it a seven. I'm going to drop that to a six. But that's just because I think I now I know too much about the author and perhaps some of the background of the story. I think I would still recommend it to people who want to think more about their life and struggles they're going through and what they can do to get through some of the struggles. You know, if if you're going through hell, keep on going kind of kind of situation. At that being said, I would almost read the first half and then put it down and think a lot about the themes in it and almost never go back and just picture yourself in a, if I was in a situation and I was given a second chance to start over with a new name in the middle of nowhere, what would I do with my life? I think there's value there. And I think that's what the people in Goodreads see when they give it four and five stars is that they can picture if I ran away and I could start over, what would I do? And then how do I take that thought and apply it to my current life? There's value in that. The ending where he needs to wrap up the story that he's using to, to bring these themes about, I think the story itself is weak, and that's why I'd give it a six. All right. That just about wraps it up for tonight. Join us next month when we review our first book of 1921, Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. A link to the book, as well as our contact information, can be found in the podcast description. Special thanks to our podcast host, Red Circle. To The Joy Drops for the intro and end credit music. And most especially to the Gutenberg Project. And until next month, thank you and good night.